0: And I'm going to pray for you. Father, thank you so much um, for blessing us with with Gordy and his love for your word. Thank you for this beautiful book of Ruth that you've given to us. Just the sweetness um, of your love for us just permeates this book. And we look forward to hearing what you have for us today, Lord from this story. Pray that you would give us open hearts, open minds, that you would um, also bring your peace. This is the topic of sexuality is often um, a difficult one for many of us. So pray for your peace, Lord, and that we would just hear what your spirit is saying to us through Gordy's teaching. Amen. Thanks, Kirsten. Well good morning. Yes, thanks. And happy Indigenous Week to all my Indigenous friends, Métis, Inuit, First Nations. You are a gift to us. Good to see you Francis and Sharon and anybody else I missed. Uh, We bless you today and you are a, a, a gift to us and we're so blessed to to be on your, your traditional territory of the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Watu, Squamish First Nations people and I uh, had such an amazing time at the powwow on Friday and uh, I want to share a little bit, I wanted to show you a video but I couldn't figure out how you get a video from your iPhone to to our system in time but it's so, this First Nations art, uh, artist by the name of Rex Small boy. Have you heard of him, Francis? Formed a rap group called um, uh, War Party. (laughs) And uh, I got to meet him, and uh, I have never heard in five minutes a more powerful apology. Uh, just got up, and for five minutes, just repented. And it was all connected to my message about sexuality and about... How we treat each other. And he was just, it was just, it was just like out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. And uh, where David said, Purge me, unsin me, Lord, unsin me with hyssop. Remember that was branches. And they were doing the smudging and the cleansing. It was so powerful. People were just weeping. Oh, so good. So good they gotta, they got to find out, uh, because it's kind of like 8 till 4 on a weekday. And I know a lot of you had to work and stuff. they got to find a way to get you there. Maybe declare it a national holiday. We'll still do that. So uh, we're, we're going to conclude today. Our, our, if you're just joining us and I see some other new faces, visitors, guests, welcome. Um, I see someone here that looks very similar to Sarah. Am I getting that right? Okay, welcome, family. Good to see you. And um, uh, if you're just joining us, you know how you watch these TV shows and serials. And if you've missed it, they they say, don't worry about it. They start with previously on Lost or whatever it is you're watching, right? So I'm going to do that a little bit with, with Ruth. But we've been going through a series entitled Gleanings of Pentecost based on the book of Ruth. And the reason we're calling it that is because in Jewish tradition, the book of Ruth was read on the day of Pentecost. You know, you just sit down, and if you're really hungry, man, I tell you, you'd be really ready to eat after they're done. Take, I don't know, what, 15 minutes to get through the book of Ruth? It's a little short book. And of course, the story of Ruth was also set in the season of Pentecost. The story happens in harvest time which really impacts the story. But of course, against the backdrop of Pentecost, which in Jewish tradition was the celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, 50 days, that's the word Pentecost comes from, after Passover. And it was dramatic. Thunder and lightning, the audible voice of God, and trumpets sounding and earthquakes happening, and people saying, no! We have this little ordinary story of Ruth. Red against that dramatic backdrop. Reminding us that God, although God can be dramatic, is most at work in our ordinary times, in our ordinary lives. And in the book of Ruth, there's no angels, no demons, no miracles, no visions, no not even any, um, it's not even really a, a story of good and evil. There's no villains, there's no violence. I mean, you know, no recipe for a bestseller. It's just throwing it all out. It's so ordinary. But I've got good news. There's a little bit of sex in Ruth. So, whew, pulled it out. And so today I want to talk about, in these last two chapters, uh, that we come to a conclusion because we're going to hit summer by the time we meet again. And by the way, this is the last time I will speak to you until September. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy summer, long story. Our house is being renovated, We have to move out. So we're going to Europe and, and we have a very capable team of summer teachers both within our church and from outside. It's going to be a great, great summer. And um, so I want to wrap this up today, talking about sexual integrity. Now, why this topic? You know, I've read the book of Ruth many times. And probably more than anything, Ruth, as is the Bible, is a love story. So I've decided to call it this because it, it in a very non-preachy, non-shrill way, it, pre- it presents this incredibly positive view on sexuality and on our bodies. See, the the Jewish view of sexuality was was a very integrated view, which is where we get the word integrity from. In other words, you can't, like our society tends to do, segment sex to one little category over here, separated from everything else. But the Jewish view of sexuality was integrated with our minds, our bodies, our spirits, our, our worship, and our community. You couldn't separate it from the community, and family, and relationships. And our culture is struggling with, I think, a real longing for sexual integrity. It's been highlighted by the recent Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s had its mantra, mantra, if it feels good, do it. But it smacked into this wall because of the need for boundaries and the need for limits. So if it feels good, doesn't mean you can do it if it means objectifying someone else. If it means exploiting someone else. In other words, sex is not a private thing. It's a very public act and it affects a whole community. It affects our capacity to love well. It affects our capacity to have a sustainable outward focus. So, what is the alternative to, if it feels good, do it, with regards to our sexuality? How do we avoid the opposite extreme of the sexual revolution, of becoming shrill as Christians and being more known for what we're against, and reducing our set our sexuality to a set of purity rules, which ends up becoming more about shaming and creating a negative view of sexuality in our bodies. Well, just on time, the book of Ruth provides a glorious third way to those extremes. It's a story of sexual integrity without preaching. It preaches the story, but not in a preachy way it's a non-moralizing non-shaming way I think it's an inclusive way radically inclusive we could call Ruth sex in ordinary time and so um, what I love about Ruth it's a bit like science fiction C.S. Lewis said science fiction is great because it takes you out of your your context and lets you look at transcendent universal values in a different context and you can see things clearer. and the book of Ruth is a bit like that it's just it's it's let's just face it this text I'm about to read you coming from a 21st century person living in the 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 age of Facebook and YouTube and all that when you read the book of Ruth and Netflix you read the book of Ruth you go what it's strange It's really strange but you gotta remember it was a long time ago, far, far away, right? But there's values, even though the practices are different that you're going to read about today, the practices are different, but there's universal transcendent values that we will see. That make sense? So let's start. So normally, I, I we read the text, and it's a bit strange, so I'm going to walk you through it a guided tour Ruth 3 so one day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for so let's do a previously in Ruth bit here previously in Ruth you'll remember that Ruth, er, Naomi and her husband Elimelech lived in Bethlehem this part of the Holy Land in modern day Israel still there And they suffered a a severe economic downturn and there was a famine. And so they did the unspeakable. They moved to Moab where they were traditional enemies. You know, they long story, listen to the podcast from the week before. But this is kind of the area. Ammon and Moab were distant relatives through Abraham, Abraham's nephew Lot. Uh, Through an incestuous relationship with his daughters, these nations were born. So not a great beginning. And they were just a thorn in Israel's side when Israel came out of the Promised Land and tried to get... or came out of Egypt to go to the Promised Land. They were were really uh, not welcomed by Moab. So Moses even declared in the law, don't associate with them. Don't have any... They can't come in... I mean, there was just this ancient hostility. But, you know, economics... So they moved, and things went pretty well. They received, it seems, a warm welcome. But sadly, not long after they moved, Elimelech died. And they had two little boys that grew up. So they must have been there at least 20, maybe even 30 years. These two little boys grew up, and they married Moabite women. Again, kind of a violation of the Torah. And they had about 10 years of happy marriage, these two sons with their Moabite Uh, wives, and suddenly they died. So here's Naomi, not only a widow, but she's lost her two sons, which is the absolute destitution if you're a woman in that time. But she hears that things are a little bit better back in Bethlehem, so she heads back, and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth, who married one of her sons, and Orpah, who married the other one, travel with her. After a little bit along the way, she goes. she turns to them and she says, you know, Friends, I know you love me, but it's not going to be easy for you back in Israel. Things aren't that, you know, it's going to be a bit of a scandal for me to show up with two Moabite women. So, with great difficulty, she convinces Orpah to go home, but Ruth says, No way, I'm going to die with you if I have to. So, Ruth stays with Naomi. They go back to Bethlehem and they start all over and they arrive right in the harvest time. And so just to survive, they're absolutely impoverished, just to survive, Ruth goes out into the the fields to glean, which was a common practice in the agricultural, uh, those agricultural times where the poor would go and glean. And of course, God instructed Moses in the law to tell the people to leave, to not go back and gather leftovers when they were harvesting the barley and the wheat, but to leave it for the poor. And this was Pentecost. This was how they celebrated Pentecost. They were to include the marginalized, make margin in their lives for the marginalized. Time, money, whatever. And when they had a party, invite the foreigner, the widow, the marginalized. So Pentecost is all about radical inclusion and crossing boundaries. And we see this happening in in the book of Ruth. So she goes out, and as we said last, as we showed last week, she ended up in Boaz's field, who was a, a relative by marriage. Elimelech, many people think he was Elimelech's brother's, uh, Elimelech's deceased brother's son. So may, maybe a nephew of Naomi by, by marriage. And he was a very wealthy man, noble man. And Ruth ended up in his field, and he shows tremendous kindness to her. And he has a sexual harassment policy that he's enforced in his workspace. He didn't just park his faith at the door when he left church on Sunday, but he Im- implemented it, and he, he, he told her, he said, I've told the men to leave you alone, not touch you. Right? So it creates a safe place for the women in his, his em- employ there. Beautiful. And he tells her, he invites her for lunch the first day she's out gleaning, which was very unusual. She, she joins the staff, And uh, they have lunch together. And then he whispers to his workers to leave out little extra sheaves. So when she comes home that first day, she's just loaded. And Naomi can't believe it. So we come to chapter three, and we can assume what happened in chapter two kind of continues for the whole harvest period, for months. That every day Ruth went out, and by the way, he told her, listen, I don't know what the sexual harassment policy of the other companies is around here, so stick with mine. This is a good place. You'll be taken care of, you'll be protected, and you'll be provided for. And so she did. And so there's this growth. You can assume that there's this growing spark between Boaz and Ruth. Because she keeps coming back every day. I'm sure that he kept inviting her for lunch. I'm sure he kept providing a little extra for Naomi. So Naomi starts to see this kind of glow on Ruth, right? When she's coming home from work every day. And this attraction grows. Could we get that door shut? Is that possible? Thank you. (laughs) I'm a little weak in body and mind today, so normally I could probably handle that, but I... Need all the help I can get. Um, So there's this growing obvious mutual attraction. But that's as far as it got. And it very likely would have stayed that way. Platonic friendship. Except for a mother-in-law. And so. Naomi makes this proposal to Ruth now Boaz with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor so Naomi observes this mutual attraction between Boaz and Ruth yet remarkably on the level of respect and friendship that lasts through the whole harvest field now they're at the time in the harvest when they would winnow. So there would be this cool breezes. Bethlehem isn't too far from the Mediterranean. These cool breezes at about 4 o'clock every night would come off the Mediterranean. And so it was very convenient after they'd thrashed the wheat, which was separating the good, the food, the edible part of the plant from the chaff and from the non-edible parts. They would, you know, drive a tractor, or not a tractor, but a combine. I mean, not a combine, but you know what I mean. the Equivalent, the threshing threshing instruments with with animals they'd use cattle uh, sometimes they would just uh, yeah just use different things after well after the scything had been done they would they would uh, thresh and separate it and then they'd take it with a fork usually three pronged and they'd throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away the chaff and the good part would come back down so it was a big job heavy job and during that season uh the owners would stay right on the threshing because it was a very economically lucrative time for them. They couldn't risk uh, theft. They couldn't... And, and it was... The threshing floors and the winnowing seasons were notorious for orgies, drunken orgies, where all kinds of behavior came, occurred. And so Boaz stayed to make sure that everything was, was in order. And that there was no theft. And so he would sleep. So keep that in mind. So she tells Ruth this strange request. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then you go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. I just want to comment. (laughs) there's, there's There's something about the body there. And this may seem like a bit unrelated. But there's something about the way that we view our bodies. As believers. That is so critical to our understanding of sexuality. And our view on sexuality. And... When you love your body, you're loving me. When you love your body, you're loving others. Paul said in Ephesians, no one hates their own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And it's an act of worship because we're beautifully and wonderfully made by our Creator. So that's so critical. And of course, when Paul said that in Ephesians, he was talking about marriage, wasn't he? That if I love and treat myself with respect, then I will, do, I will treat Kathleen, my life partner, with that love and respect. That there's you can't separate that. So I love you when I stay physically fit, when I eat well, when I make sure I get my rest. I'm loving you. That's what's so, you know, there was a lot of things about my father's death that impacted me, but one of the greatest impacts was when we took his urn of ashes and we lowered it into the ground and my brother and sister and I were all there and we were lowering it together and we all three of us were were 61, 60, and 59 of age in order and, and we just lost it right there. And we howled around that gravesite. And I'm going, well, come on. I know that he's not here. What's going on? I know he's with God. Why is this hitting me? And then I realized. This body is how I knew my dad. That's how he loved me. And I made a vow. That anytime I do a funeral, and I do this, but I said, boy, I realized how important it was uh, at that point to read the First Corinthians 15 passage on the resurrection, that we will be resurrected, and that is our blessed hope. So, love your body. Take care of it. Now, I know society goes overboard and is obsessed about the body, but, but a lot of a lot of there's a lot of self hatred out there of our bodies that creates opposite extremes of of idolatry and this obsession to stay young and beautiful. So Ruth says, "I will do whatever you say." So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother her mother-in-law told her to do. So I'm grateful there's, some, there's a website that provides these images and they say that you can use them without worrying about copyright as long as you don't preach false doctrine. So you guys kind of check that out for me, okay? You monitor this. And if it's a problem, send them a complaint. So here's Ruth. She's doing what her mother-in-law said. She doesn't let Boaz know she's there. No, she's not stalking. Okay, But she's waiting for what, what Naomi asked her to do. So when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, and by the way, the, the, uh, the Hebrew there is not that he was drunk. He wasn't out of his mind. But he was feeling good. He was drinking, but he was also very blessed by how things were going. So that's kind of the context. I thought I'd mention that because I think a lot of sexual... lack of sexual integrity is connected to uh, substance abuse. So he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile, And Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So what'd that look like? Well, kind of like this. I think that's pretty accurate. So in the age of Netflix and Showcase... We're all going, what? What's going on? And uh, it says in the middle of the night, something startled a man. How many know if you're sleeping and you think you're alone and you wake up and something's alive? That's scary, right? Especially if you're sleeping outdoors. What is this? A raccoon? Oh, my gosh. We sometimes leave our balcony open upstairs. And we used to have a tree right next to the balcony. I had this fear of waking up with a raccoon lying at my feet. Anyway, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. So I think the startling was just the fact that something living was there. But also, of course, he was such a man. You see such integrity about him. that he's going, oh, my gosh. My career's over, right? So he says, who are you? She says, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the gar- the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Well, that's strange. What does she mean? Well, the literal Hebrew is spread a wing, the wing of your garment or your blanket over me. And remember our last chapter, he said to her, you have come under the protective wings of Yahweh. Remember that language? So he, he takes, he, he can, he, she takes that language and uses that, could you stretch your wing? That is as a means of God's provision for me and for my family. So the guardian redeemer, really quickly, what's the guardian redeemer? This is not a husband, this is not somebody that, in the Levirate Law, where a brother-in-law would marry a, a widow to, to, to raise up offspring. That's not what this is. Guardian-redeemer was a, a relative of means because posterity of land was very important for Israel. And so if, uh, they, they kept uh, t- traditional family lines and boundaries for, for generations. And so if a brother died without any offspring, of course they were in danger of losing that land in the patriarchal system. And so a kinsman-redeemer... Uh, The Leverite would would be involved in in helping with that. But the Kinsman Redeemer was when someone, a family member, got in trouble with debt. And and so they were having to sell the land. Or if they were having to go into slavery, which was common back in those days, to, uh, to take care of debt. The Kinsman Redeemer or Guardian Redeemer would step in and buy the land or pay the debt. In fact, the guardian redeemer also, uh, if, if someone was murdered in a family, you'll remember the cities of refuge, the guardian redeemer was also responsible for carrying out justice. So that's kind of what, what Ruth is saying to him. You're guardian, re, guardian redeemer to, to us. So it's, redeemed literally means to, to buy back. You are a person of reputation and means, Boaz. Can you intervene for my family? Secondly, there was a second request that Ruth made of Boaz. Because of the system of posterity, as I said, land was passed down through family lines. So if a man died in the Torah, a brother was required to marry the widow, usually as a second life, a wife or more uh, in the polygamous system, and raise up children for his brother. But this was not extended beyond the immediate family. So this was not an obligation for Boaz. He didn't have to do that. But Ruth, by asking Boaz to stretch the border of his covering over Ruth, she was making a proposal of marriage. Naomi was in danger of losing her husband's land, and because her husband and sons had died, there was no one to perpetuate the family name. So Ruth was asking Boaz to both redeem the land as well as marry her. It was a dual cheeky request. However, the way that she did it was with such discretion and subtlety, it respected Boaz's character. She didn't want him to be put in an awkward situation. She wanted him to not do it because he had to. She wanted him to do it because he loved her. Out of freedom and desire, not out of obligation. And so Boaz responds to her immediately, and he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness. Now, you've got to understand, these two are incredibly in love, okay? You, you, you can read that between the lines, and they've been, they've been that way for months, all right? So he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. What is he talking about? What earlier kindness happened? She stuck with Naomi, right? She didn't give up. She stuck with her. She was loyal in, in that covenant said love of God. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. You're not only drop-dead gorgeous, you have character, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another one who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. What? And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Now, he explains to her that he's going to have to negotiate the guardian redeemer part of it. There was another family member who was a little bit closer to Naomi who had the, the inheritance right to buy the land that Naomi was having to sell to stay out of debt. And so he said, I'm going to have to do some negotiating. So why did he ask her to stay there? Safety, Safety exactly. It was dangerous for her to go back. And if he got up and accompanied her back, it could engender more questions than they wanted to answer at that point. So he covers her with a blanket. And says, stay here. And so... She lay at his feet till morning, but got out before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came into the threshing floor. So do you see his, his, his dilemma? I love this. He wants to keep her safe, but he wants to protect their reputation. So he keeps her till morning there. And then before it's too light, but light enough so that it's it's safe, he says, You can go, oh, and bring me your shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So again, just pouring out this generosity. Now I know what you're all thinking. Two people madly in love with each other. He tells her to stay for the night. And you're telling me they didn't do it? Come on. the age of netflix the age of showcase really they waited in a culture that says if a man and a woman are attracted or any two people are attracted to each other sexually and they're madly in love they have the right to have sex it's just biology isn't it what's the point of waiting yet they waited and the question is why why did they wait I don't know if they were able to sleep, doesn't say, but they waited. Now, I need to say here that most of us in some way, shape, or form have not waited, okay? So already the bar is way higher. The point is not to make, condemn us or make us feel ashamed if we haven't waited. Remember, Jesus, our Savior, had the greatest compassion for the sexually broken and for those who didn't wait, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. The point is, is not shame, the point is God's tender invitation, inviting us into a better way, a third way, into wholeness, integration, celebrating our sexuality and our bodies, regardless of how we failed in the past. That's the whole point of the blood of Jesus and the cross, and God's forgiveness that he offers. And those those I have seen in the church who've been forgiven much, love the most. It's just the way it is. So, why did they wait? Well, I think, first of all, they waited for the sake of the community. Again, sex is public, it's not a private thing. And they were thinking of their family, they were thinking of their community. And a Jewish wedding, and I've taught on this before, occurred with what's called a hupa. How many have ever heard of a hupa? You say, hupa, everybody say, hupa, right? So chuppah was this kind of canopy that the couple would stand under. And the canopy represented the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And they would, they would make their vows to one another before their family under this chuppah. And then when they were done, guess what? What was the next thing? There's a little tent over there. And they would both go into the tent. And the chuppah was taken and placed over top of the tent. And they con- consummated their marriage by making love, with the family celebrating outside. <laughs> Woo! I could just see the mother-in-law, you know. Anyway. So I actually found a picture of a chuppah. This is at the synagogue in Toronto. And you know what, I can't see the writing very good there, but you know what that says there? I love this. I will betroth you to me forever." It's out of Hosea chapter 2. So their point was, is the Shekinah glory of God would shine over the couple. And their lovemaking was a declaration of their covenant. Now listen very carefully to this. When they made love, they were saying, I am yours. What does covenant mean? When God says he's in covenant with us, what's God saying? I'm yours and you're mine forever. Our lives are intertwined. And the problem with promiscuity is you're saying with your body what you can't say with your heart. And that's why there's so much confusion over it. They're saying, I am yours, you are mine, and with the blessing of their whole community, it's a reminder that their sexuality is grounded in God's chassad, God's unconditional, unfailing, covenantal love, which is expressed in the words we commonly use, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And so they waited. They waited. Because they wanted it to be an act of community. They wanted their sexuality to continue to be an act of love. And not an act of self aggrandizement. So, verse 16, when Ruth came, I love this, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, they're doing the dishes, whatever. Naomi goes, so how'd it go? (laughs) Can't you just hear it? How'd it go? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, There's that word, eh? Wait. Until you find out what happens. For the man, I know men, the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Boaz, at the city gates is where they used to have these kind of meetings, meets with the kinsman redeemer and they negotiate. He finds out the kinsman redeemer is willing to buy the land, but he's not willing to marry Ruth. He said it would too jeopardize his own inheritance and his family members that he already had. So if he was Leverite, he'd have to do it. But he wasn't. So he wasn't obligated to do it. So he said no. So, so Boaz says, hmm. And they make a deal. And the nearest uh, guardian redeemer transfers that by a strange custom where they used to take off their shoe and pass it to the other person in front of witnesses to declare... That the the inheritance had been passed. And Boaz goes. I get the girl. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. And when he made love to her. Which could have been right on there on wedding day folks. This is back before birth control. Okay. Probably happened right on wedding day in the tent. When he made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son and the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you. Better to you than seven sons. What a thing. Has given him birth Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. (laughs) And they named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Wow. Happy times. Story's not finished. I don't know where you're at in the story. Maybe you're still in bereavement and grief and loss. But wherever you are, the story's not finished Sexual integrity, which includes a wholesome and healthy view of our sexuality, of our bodies, is best found in the context of God's Hased, God's covenantal, unfailing love, and is essential for a sustainable outward focus and loving well both as individuals and as a community. Wow. So can you be grateful for your body? Can you believe that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? Your body has been given to you as a gift. Your sexuality has been given to you as a gift. I know it drives us all crazy sometimes. But it's, it's, an exp- it's, it's, it's such an expression of who God is. That capacity to be attractive and to attract and to be attracted to someone else. That need for touch, that need for intimacy. My daughter gave me a gift last night, sent me to a massage therapist. and I got an upper body massage. This guy's just working me over. I'm getting these goosebumps. Just, oh, he was just, he just knew where to get, get the stuff. And I thought, wow, what a gift with his hands. You and I all need to be touched. And what's so Horrible about sexual abuse and sexual harassment and objectification is it destroys that precious gift that we all need to be held and touched. And so it's because of love that we have sexual harassment and child protection policies and protection for vulnerable adults. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need those rules, but we're so broken. So we work hard at that, not so that we're just slavishly following little details, but so that we can grow in our capacity to love as wholesome individuals. Your body is how you love me, my body is how I love you my eyes, my hands, my presence. So where are you on the shame of spectrum and honor with regards to your own sexuality and body? Do you love your body or do you hate it? So many of our eating disorders and even gender dysphoria, not all, but some gender dysphoria comes from that. Perhaps a combination of the two. Name some aspects of your story that have influenced this. Think about your story. How has your story taught you to see your body? I had to come through so much shame to the place where I could celebrate my sexuality. Because, you know, as a a religious kid, I was taught all my life that sex was bad unless it was in marriage. And so all of a sudden on wedding night, you have to make that adjustment. Something bad is all of a sudden something good. And I don't think we do our our children, young people, a favor of, of just using a prohibition purity approach. But we need to learn to celebrate this gift that God has given to us. And find, you know, I think that every one of us with regards to sexuality needs trusted friends. I have someone, I have people in my life who know everything, everything. And it's so powerful and it's so safe. Because if we, it doesn't say if we're sinless, we have fellowship with one another. What does it say? If we walk in the light, as He's in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So I got started a bit late and I'm ending a bit late, but I think it's important to just stop and pause, and let's wait. Remember that song we played a couple weeks ago? He's in the waiting. It's true with our sexuality too. He's in the waiting. Right? He's in the waiting. And it's in this crazy, mysterious part of our lives, this sexuality part, that we have the potential to most encounter God. Our sexuality is such an expression of who God is. It's an eternal community that one in three and three in one. Amazing. Lord, thank you for the gift. On this indigenous week, as we think about colonization and sexual assault and exploitation is all, it's all colonization. We're taking what doesn't belong to us without consent, without permission, without informed consent. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you protect us from the shaming and the guilt that just only makes things worse? And would you give us the gift of celebration? The gift of celebrating our bodies, integrating our sexuality with our minds, our emotions, our spirits, our prayer. Prayer and sex, as Eugene Peterson says, is so connected. with our communities. May we be a loving community. I just want to read these words from Paul to us. Ephesians. There's so many scriptures like this in the New Testament, but I love this. This is one that just so blesses me. He says, and walk in love. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But among you, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. It's interesting that he puts sexual immorality in the same category as colonization or greed. Taking what doesn't belong to you because these are improper for God's holy people. Neither should there be obscenity, foolish talking, or coarse joking, which are out of place. But what's, what's the positive? But rather, thanksgiving. Be thankful. Be thankful. So Lord, make us a sustainable, outward-focused community by a community that has a healthy sexuality, that has a welcome and openness to the sexually broken, because we're all that, different degrees, we've all done that, we've all been there. But may we walk in love because we've been forgiven much. We can love much. So help us embrace that tension of receiving your mercy and your grace. forgiveness, but also embracing your invitation to something better. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, Amen. So we're going to pray. just going to invite Colleen to come back up again. We're going to pray for Colleen today. I'm just going to invite some folks to come and help us pray. If some of you need prayer into some of the things that were touched on today, Please don't go until you've had someone pray with you. Um, just uh, I wanted to just congratulate Frances on her retirement. She's having a retirement party tomorrow. Yeah. So how many years, Frances, in the school? 26 years. And her retirement party's at Britannia tomorrow. Lots to celebrate. But she's not finished yet. Just a new chapter, so congratulations. And to our grads, Elise graduated this, this week, one of our young people. Did I miss anybody? I know, I know there was at least Elise. You know, right oh, fantastic. Awesome. Beautiful. All right, well, bless you. There's coffee at the back. Uh, come on up, Colleen. Where are you? Let's pray for her. Just going to ask some of you to gather around. Let's pray for her and bless her.